Welcome to the Virtual Word Rounds, a surgery podcast that helps you answer those burning questions you never had a chance to ask by the bedside. Hi, and welcome back to Virtual Word Rounds. Today we are discussing post-operative fever in a patient, and I have with me as always, Serge the Surgeon. How are you? Very good, very good. Thank you, Wendy. A very important and uh, a topic that we encounter often, and it is can be sometimes a little bit difficult to figure out what exactly is going on. And today we're joined by Nathan. How are you? Hi, doing well. Doing well. Just another day on the wards. Good, good. And how's your assistant in medicine role going? I think it's good. Doing all the paperwork does get a bit tedious, but the opportunities that you get to go into the operating theatre and even simple jobs like putting a cannula in, you enjoy Cool. Is that because you're earning money now or? A bit of that. (laughs) (laughs) That must feel good. Money really does help. Okay. So, so shall I um, kick off with a scenario for today? Sounds good. Excellent. Okay. Nathan, you are the after hours intern. Congratulations. You've been promoted by two more months covering the surgical ward. The nurse calls you to inform you that one of your day one post-operative patients who had a cholecystectomy or maybe they had a hernia repair, we don't know yet, developed a fever of 38.4 degrees. What's standing out for you now that I've said our scenario? So I think you need to grab the important pieces of information. So you're on the surgical award and they're post-operative So your causes and your differentials list that Surge loves will start to narrow down just with those two pieces of information. Um, And then the fever of 38.4 as well is a little bit high. Uh, It's quite substantially high and something that should sort of uh, set off some alarm bells within your mind as this is something that probably needs to be fixed a little bit more urgently. Um, Maybe you can't have dinner yet because you're in after hours. Maybe you need to go and assess this patient. Uh, Nathan, can fever be normal? Can this be a just a normal physiological response post-surgery? In some cases, uh, we, we get taught that it can be a normal physiological response, but with a fever of 38.4 at that high, you'd start to think that there's probably some either infective or inflammatory, more infective process going on. I, I agree with that. I think fever of 38.4 is always going to be abnormal uh, unless there is a known underlying uh, process that can, can create fever that's going on that we know about this patient. In pretty much everyone else, fever will be assumed as an abnormal process. And, and so that what that tells me is that, uh, Nathan, you should actually you know, look at this patient and investigate this further. Would you agree with that, Wendy? I definitely agree. I thought it was good Nathan put down his dinner and then realised 38.4, he should probably go and see the patient (laughs) post-haste. So I'm going to let you guys delve into the differentials now and then maybe, um, Nathan, afterwards you could give us the mnemonic that's commonly used. But maybe we'll just start with what are some of your differentials as to the causes of a post-operative fever? Yeah, so I actually do like to use the medical school mnemonic because it sort of does it help you sort of try and identify the common things as well, and particularly the time frame at which they occur. Um, So the classic mnemonic we get told is wind, water, 
walking wound. And the last one is wonder drugs, which is probably something that you'll never see, but always keep that in the back of your mind. Um, so if you're not aware, wind is uh, some basal atelectasis. Um, so due to the anesthetic that patients often undergo in the operation, the ventilation in the uh, basis of the lung is not often adequate and that can cause a basal collapse um, resulting in the post-op fever. And if you're a little bit further down the track, people in hospital are generally at higher risk of pneumonias. Um, so you want to make sure that there's no pneumonic process going on as well. Um, regarding the water, UTIs, they're quite common, particularly when you get an elderly female. Um, that's something that would allude you to the fact that there could be an, a UTI going on. Uh, with walking, as on any surgical ward, most patients should have some form of DVT prophylaxis, whether they've got TED stockings or Clexane and heparin. That's something that you really want to rule out as well. Um, DVTs can progress to PEs, and that becomes a huge problem um, to manage later on. So trying to prevent that at all circumstances is best. And with the wound, surgical side infections as well. So depending on the operation, um, if they've had some laparoscopic work and you go and have a look at one of the uh, surgical sites and it's a bit red, inflamed and pussy, that would probably be a good cause um, for a fever, but they tend not to occur very immediately after the post-operative period. So if you're day one, it's very unlikely that it would be a surgical site infection. Um, and then, yeah, the wonder drugs. So some of the anesthetics can cause um, something we call neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Um, and that would probably be a common cause of a post-operative fever if they have a reaction to any of those drugs. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good outline, Nathan. And I think for future medical students, it's a really good kind of framework to have in your head to think of the ideas. Just don't say to the consultant, well, you've got wind, water, wonder drugs, walking. It doesn't make you look as smart. Serge, what would your kind of approach be, I guess, to examining or getting a really good quick understanding of What's going on with this patient? Yeah, uh, so mnemonics are fantastic at uh, figuring out what is the most common thing that can happen uh, with this particular patient given the presentation. Uh, I have left the mnemonics uh, a little while ago, so my approach will be a little bit more, uh, I guess, uh, practical. Um, uh, as far as putting down my dinner and rushing to see the patient, um, while the nurse is still on the phone with me, I would ask the nurse if, if the patient is actually unwell, uh, if, if the rest of their orbs are okay, if they're tachycardic, if, uh, if their blood pressure is holding up, if their saturations are okay, are they complaining of pain, are they awake, asleep, and also if there's anything that's been um, given to the patient at the time, whether they've received some Panadol. So if the patient is otherwise not, not unwell, they just have, and they're just day one, uh, and they're just having a, a, you know, a 38-4 fever, uh, I will definitely have to go and see them. But uh, if I have a patient with, a, um, say, a cardiac sound and chest pain, I'll probably prioritize that patient over, over a bit of post-operative fever. Um, once I come and see the patient, um, I will figure out what a procedure had exactly. I will read the op report and I'll see if there was any issues with the procedure. You know, have, uh, has there been uh, an inadvertent uh, enterotomy made? Uh, is this uh, an elective gallbladder? 
or is this a hot gallbladder with lots of pus and bile having spilled inside the peritoneal cavity? Uh, that could definitely account for a degree of uh, uh, inflammation and fever. Uh, are they already on antibiotics? Were they on antibiotics leading up to it? Um, how long have they spent in hospital? I'll, I'll find out about their comorbidities, if they've got any underlying issues uh, that will contribute to uh, the problem if there is, uh, if we are actually dealing with sepsis. Do they have underlying COPD? Do they smoke? Um, have, they, have they had a prolonged stay in hospital and are already deconditioned? All of those things will contribute to my uh, approach. As far as investigating the, uh, the, the patient, um, I will get some, I mean, I'll recommend some bloods to be taken, uh, get, have a look at the uh, inflammatory markers. Uh, day one is going to be highly unlikely that anything is going to that anything is going to be apparent on the bloods unless there's something catastrophic going on, and that should be apparent from your examination. Have a look at the wound site. We're not expecting to find infection. It's day one, but if there is a big hematoma, uh, or if there is bile leaking out of the drain. Uh, that might give you a bit of a clue as to what's going on. If their belly is soft and non-tender uh, and their oxygen situations is a touch on the low side, you might, you might assume that this might well be an apoplexis issue, which can produce you know, relatively uh, substantial fever. If I'm suspecting that this is actually uh, an infective process, uh, then this patient will need to, to be cultured. Uh, and so you'll do a, a, what we call a septic workup in hospital. Uh, do you guys know what it is? Uh, yeah, so uh, so it will culture everything that uh, that we can get our hands on essentially, uh, and that includes um, uh, blood cultures, usually from uh, a separate uh, from a separate uh, site, not from a cannula because the cannulas can be contaminated. Uh, culture the urine, um, culture the sputum if you suspect something's going on there. Uh, culture the drains if there is any drains. Culture the drain fluid. Have a listen to the chest, uh, get a chest x-ray if you suspect that there is something going on there. If this is an elective patient and this is day one after elective cholecystectomy and everything went well, then low-grade fever is not uncommon, uh, but we need to exclude all of the other differentials. All right. Mm -hmm. um, and it is the timing, the timing of this fever is, is the most important thing in my mind. A few days down the track, two, three days later, some of the late complications may develop with infections and leaks and you know, all sorts of things, UTIs. Um, but day one, there's only a few things that, that really um, are common, which is atelectasis, something related to uh, anesthetic drugs. So malignant hypothermia or that neuroleptic malignant syndrome usually usually happens intraoperatively rather than postoperatively, but can be delayed as any sort of reaction to drugs. And um, catastroph catastrophic things, some badness that happened, either um, a missed enterotomy, bowel perforation, um, something technical or, or bleeding, uh, something that is that needs to be attended right here, right now. So there's not a whole lot of uh, differentials on day one, thankfully. We can narrow it down very, very quickly. Serge, can I just clarify also for our listeners? So we've talked about 
then kind of the workup and the assessment and then what the most common things are for day one. So you mentioned two things there, then um, is it neuro neuroleptic malignancy? Neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Yes. Can you give me a nice SAQ definition, please, Nathan? Uh, I don't know whether I can give you an exact SAQ definition. <laughs> it's been a while since the exams, but I know it's a common syndrome that tends to occur in patients that take um, SSRIs or SNRIs, um, tricyclic antidepressants, um, and usually they tend to be a drug reaction um, in which the body has an abnormal response to those drugs um, and responds by increasing the hypothalamic set point um, and basically results in a fever. Um, it can be life-threatening if it, the temperature does, does get too high, um, as is the same for any sort of infection that causes a fever of greater than 39. You want to make sure you get that under control. Um, that's definitely no SAQ exact answer, but that's a sort of brief intro into what it might be. That was beautiful to hear, Nathan. Um, and Serge, can you give me a very quick definition of the, what was the other one you mentioned, the malignant hypothermia? Because believe it or not, we don't, we, I'm collectively including all medical students across the universe, might not have heard of that yet. Look, malignant uh, hypothermia is... Uh, not a very common uh, thing at all, and uh, it, it definitely not something that I would be uh, encountering uh, or managing. It is more of an anaesthetic um, uh, thing. Uh, but from what I understand is uh, you have a genetic predisposition um, uh, to a reaction to so certain um, anaesthetic drugs, uh, and we don't routinely test patients for that genetic a mutation, uh, but if they do and they get a certain drug, then there is a high risk of them developing an uncontrolled uh, fever, uh, and and it can be quite serious. It's very it sometimes can be very difficult to manage, um, and uh, there are there, there are still cases of patients uh, dying from that. Um, don't think that's going to be one of your differentials in a in an adult, uh, you know, day one because it's usually it is it happens uh, at the time the drugs are active, um, but uh, certainly intraoperatively if your patient is developing high fever, um, hypertension, um, uh, that would be um, a consideration and a priority for the anesthetists to to attend to. And I've had to stop a case uh, because of that uh, once. Uh, and that's pretty much all I know about it, Wendy, to be honest. That's probably more than most people know, as usual, Serge. Mm. Thank oh, you. Oh, thanks, Wendy. Um, so I think you outlined nicely, Serge, the kind of septic screen. Before we delve into the world of sepsis and all its sisters, is there anything else you wanted to kind of make sure we know about for a post-operative fever? As far as uh, day one postoperative fever, you're, uh, you, you, you will do, you, you will come and see the patient, you will assess them, you will examine them, you will do the septic screen. But please do not forget that this is only part of your job. Uh, if you suspect that this patient uh, is having an infective process of some sort, uh, or atelectasis or anything else, you need to consider how, how you're going to manage this. Uh, and at an intern level, uh, you're probably going to be asking for some advice from either the medical or surgical registrar. Uh, it, it can be as simple as chest physiotherapy, breathing exercises, uh, a little bit of oxygen support. 
sometimes you may need to start antibiotics. Sometimes um, you need to control the source of infection. If it is, uh, you know, day three and it is a uh, wound infection, there is a collection, uh, you may need to escalate it so that that collection may be drained. So always remember that your job uh, is not just to collect information and send appropriate tests. It may seem like that sometimes uh, when you're an intern, uh, but you always need to think what is the next step? What does this information give us? And how are we going to manage this patient? How are we going to get them better? I think the only other thing I'd mentioned before we close this kind of part off is the approach to thinking of diagnosis or differentials that I've really always been taught as well is to go local and systemic. And I think our director of surgery might, I might get in trouble with her if I don't outline that because that's what I've been hammered in for the last 30 weeks. So it's a really helpful way of thinking about it as well. Okay, SIRS and sepsis. Are we ready, guys? Uh, Nathan, it's really fun asking you definitions. So I'm going to give you another one. Are you ready? Uh, if, if I remember it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can you please give me a definition of SIRS? So SIRS, just for people that um, don't might well might not know, it uh, stands for a systemic inflammatory response syndrome. Um, and there's four criteria uh, that need to be met. Um, so usually it's a temperature, hyper or hypothermia, most commonly a hyperthermia of greater than 38 degrees, but cold sepsis is something that can occur and Serge might delve into that a little bit. Um, looking at the other vital signs as well, a tachycardia with a heart rate of greater than 90 beats per minute, um, a tachypnea, so where the respiratory rate is greater than 20 beats per minute, or if you get an ABG, um, then the PaCO2 is less than 32 millimetres of mercury. Um, and then the fourth criteria is a leukocytosis uh, or a left shift of white blood cells uh, greater than 12 um, or 10% 10, 10 of immature bands, which is something that I've never seen before. So, mm. yeah. The left shift thing does my head in. You can tell I'm non-science background. Anyway, Nathan, do you have to have um, all four of those criteria so um, I think this is where the criteria is slightly changing a little bit and Serge will be able to jump in a little bit but okay. um, I was reading last night that four out of five people in ICU have a technical definition of SIRS where they just needed to tick off the boxes without any actual clinical signs of SIRS so I think they're changing the definition to a change from baseline uh, for two of the four criteria well the SIRS is uh, is 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 essentially two out of these four criteria. It is a, a, a completely arbitrary collection of signs. And as Nathan uh, alluded to, four out of five patients in ICU will have SIRS, but they're not necessarily going to have sepsis, which is the, the next stage. It, it doesn't surprise me as much as it surprises Nathan, because a lot of the patients in ICU will be very sick and they will have some sort of um, pathology going on, which is not necessarily a pathology related to an infective process, but majority of our pathologies will cause some sort of inflammatory response. Does that make sense, Nathan? That clarifies things. So that four out of five patients in ICU have SIRS is probably a fairly um, reasonable thing for them to have. The question that has really come up, and we're going to talk about uh, old definition of sepsis and the new definition of sepsis in a moment, 
is whether definition of SIRS is helpful. And if four out of five patients in intensive care have SIRS, how do we differentiate between people that have better SIRS or a worse SIRS? And which of those patients do we need to prioritize and how are we going to treat? So this question has come up and the definition of sepsis has changed. Nathan, I think the old definition, the, the sepsis two definition was SIRS, so two out of those four criteria that you've mentioned, plus known or suspected source of infection. So for example, you've got SIRS uh, criteria, so you'd be tachycardic, you've got raised white cell count, and you've got appendicitis clinically. So you go, all right, the patient is septic because they've got SIRS and we know they've got appendicitis or suspect they've got appendicitis. Or if you come in with a cutaneous infection or a wound infection, uh, you have a bit of fever, uh, say 38.1, um, and uh, you, your white cell count is up again, and you've got a big abscess, you go, all right, so this patient again is septic because they've got the source of infection and they have two other four parameters for SIRS. Now, the definition has changed recently. And do you, Nathan, you're, you're the definition man, aren't you? Oh, I think you're now trying to push the boundaries a little bit. I don't think I can get that one exact. <laughs> okay, well, I'll give it a go because I actually, uh, I, I'm cheating and I'm reading it off uh, my uh, iPhone. And it's uh, defined currently as life-threatening organ dysfunction due to dysregulated host response to infection. And organ dysfunction is defined as an acute change in total sequential organ failure assessment score of two points or more. So there's quite a lot to uncover here, isn't there, Nathan? Yeah. Mm. Sounds like a really hard SAQ. I, I, so, and I don't know this. So this sepsis three definition has been around since 2016. And I think it is about time that it starts filtering into uh, the medical school curriculum, to be honest. So do you, why, why, did they, why did they come up with this new definition, Nathan? I think you've been reading a little bit about it recently. Yeah, so I, I was trying to read, um, trying to wrap my head around a little bit, and I'm still trying to, but my understanding um, was the fact that uh, sepsis two definition didn't sort of entirely help differentiate between SIRS, SIRS with sepsis and septic shock, um, which I think Serge will go into some other definitions to try and clarify. Um, but I think the whole point of sepsis three um, was to try and clarify and sort of make it a little bit easier to identify patients with sepsis and then identify patients um, with severe sepsis that would likely go into end organ dysfunction that will create further complications within their admission. Mm. And does that mean that the sepsis 2 definition, the SIRS plus known or suspected source, is now invalid and we cannot use it? Absolutely not. I think it's a, if, if that's what you know, and that's a good way to try and um, identify patients that are septic, and ones that are at risk of going into septic shock, then by all means you can use it. Um, and I think until, yeah, sepsis three becomes uh, more clinically applicable and everyone starts to know sepsis three, um, then yeah, sepsis two with SIRS plus sepsis um, would, is quite useful. Mm. Um, I agree I, I agree with that completely. I think that we, we should be um, able to use 
these definitions interchangeably. Sepsis three definition is a consensus statement uh, of uh, International Conference of uh, Intensive um, Care Specialists. So it is mainly applicable to those intensive care patients. And what it allows the intensivist to do is to separate those patients with SERS from patients that have a less than 10% mortality risk, 10 to 30% mortality risk, and more than 30% mortality risk. And that is why they use this sequential organ failure assessment score. Uh, it's a very basic um, medical calculator. It's called SOFA score, or there's also a quick version of it called QSOFA. Uh, and um, you, know, you can Google it up. It's, uh, there's, I think, seven or eight questions that assesses different organ systems for signs of dysfunction. And if you have more than one organ system dysfunction, not necessarily a failure, I'm talking about dysfunction. So uh, your creatinine going up, uh, your bilirubin going up, or your um, oxygenation level is, is dropping. Uh, so if you have a dysfunction in two of those systems compared to the baseline, that increases your risk of mortality from sepsis by 10%. Okay, so what this allows, uh, allows us to do in intensive care is to stratify those patients um, into, into uh, patients that have SERS or infection, uh, patients that are having sepsis, where they have um, not just SERS plus infection, but where you have organ dysfunction, and then we can uh, stratify them into patients with septic shock, where, the, where there is a raise of in lactate, change in GCS, or persistent hypotension requiring inotropes. So those groups are now becoming a lot better defined. We don't work in ICU. We work majority of the times with patients that do not require inotropic support. A lot of our patients coming in through emergency, they have infective source, some kind of intra-abdominal sepsis, they may display some SERS features, uh, inflammatory response. Uh, for me to be able to diagnose this patient with sepsis, I don't necessarily have to rely on the definition of sepsis 3. Last night, we had a patient with perforated um, uh, sigmoid colon yeah. due to um, diverticulitis, a young bloke. And uh, that we unfortunately had to go and do a Hartman's procedure on. He was septic. He was febrile and tachycardic, and his white cell count was elevated. Uh, but on the SOFA scoring, he didn't score anything at all, partially because it was too early and partially because he's got so much reserve. Uh, but he was septic, and there was absolutely no question about that. Uh, so I think that the new definition is certainly helpful and it is worth knowing about it. Uh, but we should also understand that the new definition of sepsis does not necessarily, again, apply to everyone that we see. And if a clinician suspects that this is sepsis, despite the definition, I think that would still be the gold standard of management. Does that make sense, Wendy? It does. And I think it's 
good to kind of just come back to, which I think you've both done nicely, is it's good to know what you know and then know that sepsis three exists. But it sounds like as long as we know the basics and have the understanding, because what we want to really do is, I guess, almost label the patient as potentially having sepsis or having sepsis so that we can treat early, which it sounds like worked with this guy last night. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. So we 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 know that he's got uh, sepsis. Uh, we know that he has a reason to have sepsis, and we know what we need to do to treat this patient to prevent complications of sepsis, which is in this particular case was surgical removal, uh, surgical source control by doing mm-hmm. the Hartman's procedure. Mm-hmm. On that note, um, should we do our three key messages? to wind up and search i'll let you go first for once okay yeah sh- sure um so as always um uh, and i and i keep on drumming uh, drumming on about this pretty much in every episode uh think broadly uh, cover your bases get as much information as possible uh, put it all together uh, and see if you can come up with a list of differentials in in order of more likely to least likely, uh, and then take the differential to someone who can help you uh, decide how this patient needs to be managed. Missing things, sweeping things under, under the carpet, ignoring calls uh, is the least is the worst that you can do. Uh, be be dutiful, be diligent, and good things will happen. I like that, Nathan. I'm being kind. I'll let you go next. <laughs> Thanks, Wendy. Um, so I think that sort of tags onto the back of what Serge was saying. Um, but in terms of when you suspect a patient does have sepsis, particularly as a junior doctor, work them up fully. You really don't want to miss anything. A chest X-ray at 10 p.m. at night might be inconvenient, but if it, if it identifies a pneumonia and you can give them antibiotics, um, which will help them get managed faster, um, then by all means do it. Always do a blood culture when you've got a patient with a fever greater than 38 and hopefully it comes back negative. But if it comes back positive, then you can start managing that as well. Um, So I think as a junior doctor, I think make sure that you thoroughly assess the patient, go and see them um, and then order the appropriate investigations and then consult with your senior as well and they'll be able to help you with management. Very nice, very smooth. Um, Mine is very basic as always. So I just really like taking the kind of crux of the history. So how many days operative are we talking about with our patient and what was their surgery and is is the patient well or unwell? And that can determine whether I finish my dinner or don't finish my dinner. Very pragmatic. Oh, always. Yeah. No, Wendy, I think you're a bond surgeon. (laughs) I like to keep things simple. Thank you so much, guys. And Nathan, thank you for joining us for this episode and um, our previous episode about becoming a pre-intern. You've been a superstar. We look forward to seeing you as a future surgeon. Thanks again for having me. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks, Wendy. See you guys next time. Thank you, Serge. See you later. Virtual Board Rounds is available wherever you get your podcasts. For updates, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, or to send your thoughts, queries, concerns, comments, you can also email us at virtualworldrounds at gmail.com. Until next time, happy studies. <laughs>